it was a mirror trade office, you know, five minutes from my, my parents' house. And so my dad would drive me over there and I'd place trades in person sometimes. I'd make them online sometimes, uh, too. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey, man. Thank you. I can't thank you guys enough for being here. You're listening to the dinner party just before Blair Silverberg's bar mitzvah in December of the year 2000. My thanks to mom and dad Silverberg for finding the videotape. It says 12-2000 Blair bar mitzvah, basically. So we have it. (laughs) Home video. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Allison, what words of wisdom do you have for Blair for tomorrow? If you would give him some advice, what would you tell him? Now, if you've never been to a bar mitzvah, one of the traditions is to give the celebrant what's been called a ritually significant amount of money. Blair ended up with about $2,500. So you got money, as one does, at one's bar mitzvah, uh, and you did what with it? So, uh... (laughs) I started investing in the stock market really when I was like 12 or 13. And, um, you know, basically, um, I, I don't even know why. Um, but I think my dad, who's a doctor, um, had been investing in stocks, uh, just for fun. And I thought it was fascinating because it's, for some reason at a very young age, I thought of investing as a way to learn how the world works. And so I thought that if I could just read about how a company works, and understand it. I could just do that company by company. And eventually, maybe I'd read about enough companies that I understand how as a society, we're allocating our resources. And, um, you know, it turns out that there are too many companies for me to read 10k by 10k about every single one. So I discovered that as I started um, back in those days, you could go onto a company's investor relations website, and have them send you a physical copy of their annual report. So somewhere in my parents' house to this day, we have boxes and boxes of annual reports. And so I discovered that there were only so many annual reports you could store in your closet. Um, and that became the cap on how many companies I could really understand. But I just thought it was a fascinating way to learn about how the world worked. You know, some kids buy Nintendo with their bar mitzvah money. I did that too. <laughs> I just just spent more time investing than playing Nintendo. I don't know. It got it got boring. But yeah, I mean, even to this day, I mean, uh, I'm just I'm just fascinated by learning. And you know, I love learning languages. I love learning a bunch of different things. But it just turns out that investing is this incredible way to um, understand the world in a very tangible way 
and then evaluate how well you know it by placing bets. And if you're wrong, you know, you don't know as well as you think you do how something works. Now, here's the thing. He wasn't wrong. Blair turned the $2,500 in bar mitzvah money into $100,000. That's a 40x return. As you might imagine, as he grew up, the investment world was very interested in Blair. When you entered venture capital, you were at Draper Fisher Jurvetson. Um, were you there when Tim was there? I was, yeah. And Tim's one of my investors now, but um, yeah, I worked very closely with him. He, he's quite the personality. He is. He's a fascinating guy. He's also incredibly generous. Um, I mean, he took me when I was a brand new venture capital associate to the Stanford football game, like the two of us, when we sat at the 50-yard line and I just could ask him any question I possibly had. Um, he's, a, he's a great guy, but yeah, he's, he's got quite the personality. What was your best investment at uh, in your first venture capital attempt? So I funded a company called Nirvana Systems together with Steve Jurvetson, who's also one of my investors at Hum. And, um, you know, I found it. Uh, Steve kind of delegated to me figuring out how it works. We partnered on understanding the business, uh, making an investment in it, so on and so forth. And it was a company that was making uh, artificial intelligence chips. And within about a year, year and a half of making the investment, it got sold to Intel. It became Intel's entire artificial intelligence division. And, you know, for me, I mean, it was an incredibly rapid return. Um, and it taught me a lot about how strategics think about acquiring startups. Uh, but it was a it was a tremendous investment. I mean, it was like a, you know, multi-thousand percent IRR. That's that's nice to be a young, young person at a venture capital firm. And one of your earliest investments turns around that fast. That was a great experience. Yeah, because it's such a long feedback loop. It's hard in venture to know if you're doing it correctly, because you don't know for 10 years. Um, but yeah, for me, I was fortunate to get some quick feedback. Is there a mistake you made that you learned from? Oh, yeah, I made tons of mistakes. But the thing in venture that's tricky is um, success is about having a couple bets that really work out in venture. This is not true of other types of investing. But in venture, it's about having two, four, maybe six investments that really work out, which means you can make a ton of mistakes. You I was going to say, if you, could, if you got six, you're a genius. Yeah, Right. You but can you be can wrong 90%. That's right. Yeah. You can be wrong 90% of the time and still be an incredible venture capitalist. And this is, you know, this gets into the psychology of like how a venture capitalist thinks. It's very different than other kinds of investing. They're buying what, you know, a financier would call options, you know, a small amount of money with the potential to earn a, you know, multi thousand times return covers up for 90% of the time getting getting the bet completely wrong. And so it's really the kind of business where um, you can't learn that much from your mistakes <laughs> because your mistakes are really errors of omission, not commission. It's completely fine to get it wrong 90% of the time. You just don't want to miss the ones that end up being great businesses. Silverberg is now the head of Hum Capital, a few blocks from the Flatiron Building in Manhattan, where he's still funding companies by connecting those with money to those who need it. He compares what he does to the travel service Kayak. So there's about 13,000 institutional investors, 5,500 uh, commercial banks in the U.S. And yet entrepreneurs are still navigating this search space <laughs> manually, building lists of who they know, asking for introductions to people they don't know, trying their best to get from point A to point B. And there should be just like efficiencies we've gotten in being able to search search the travel space via kayak, the same thing should exist for 
raising capital. So we decided to build this. Now, most of the funding that you are able to connect to your entrepreneurs that sign up with you is non-dilutive, right? It's non-dilutive debt, which I think is a fancy way of just saying a loan uh, versus venture capital. Explain to someone who doesn't understand the difference, the difference. Yeah, this is a great question. So, um, so first at a high level, we help businesses raise equity, debt, combine the two, all sorts of structures. Um, and so this is something that we, um, in October, we received our broker dealer license from the SEC, which means we can basically help companies raise any, any kind of capital they're interested in. Um, now, a fascinating question is what kinds of capital should a company raise? And it turns out that there are tons of types of capital. So we think about venture, for example, venture capital is equity. Well, it's preferred equity. It's highly structured. There's liquidation preferences. There's pro rata rights. There's all sorts of bells and whistles in the standard venture financing today that makes it quite different from how people think it works as traditional equity. And so we help companies figure this all out. And, you know, there are cases where a company can have more flexibility in capital raising a term loan than they can venture equity. And there are other cases where a company should be raising venture equity in its exact current format because it's the most efficient way to get finance. Uh, so we help companies figure all of these kinds of nuances out. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What is the advantage I mean, I guess I don't give away equity, but but you know, a situation in which I'm taking on debt, uh, particularly you know, looking at this calendar, by the time we run this interview, the Fed may have raised interest rates significantly with plans to raise them further. Uh, you know, debt seems scarier to me than giving away oh, fifteen percent of my company. Oh gosh, that's a great question. So when you give away fifteen percent of your company, the more successful you are, the more expensive the capital was. You sell for a billion dollars, you gave away 150 million. You sell for 10 billion, you gave away 1.5 billion. So there's a perverse incentive there, right? Your cost of capital goes up as you succeed. Debt is the opposite. You have a fixed cost of capital. You borrow money, let's say, at you know today's rates, depending on the type of company you are, anywhere from four to 15 percent. And you sell your company for a billion or 10 billion dollars, and you owe the same amount in debt back to your lender with interest. And so, you know, it is always more advantageous to raise capital in the format of debt versus equity. And that's why people take out mortgages on their house versus selling 20% of their earnings until the end of time. That just doesn't happen. Um, however, like taking out a mortgage on your house, you have to do the math to understand whether or not you'll be able to pay it back. And, um, you know, we help people do that math. Your company itself just raised a Series A, right? So was that dilutive or non-dilutive? That's a great question. So we've raised up until this point, um, and at least I guess publicly announced, um, only equity. 
Um, I guess with the exception of some non-dilutive capital we raised very early on. But well, just funny general, for a guy for a guy who you know is pushing non-dilutive. Uh, <laughs> you, you you took you took a, an, an equity position, or, or or your investor took an equity position. Yeah. So um, so I think the best way to explain this is you know different kinds of capital make sense for different points of time. So the money we've raised so far was designed to have us create software that didn't exist, build a team that didn't exist, build a business. That didn't exist. And in general, when you're doing those things, financing with equity is the way to do it because it's unpredictable when you'll be able to pay off the debt and how I was much. gonna say another way of saying that is is when you don't have something that doesn't when you have something that doesn't exist, banks are not excited by that. Yeah, banks are banks are absolutely not excited about it. But you know, I mean, similarly, like it's it's like it would be like raising a mortgage to go prospect on land. I don't know what house is out there, nor what it's priced at, but I will promise to pay you back. You know, <laughs> over thirty years. Is what you're doing the future of venture capital? If we think of venture capital as being taking the meeting and taking the equity and writing the term sheet and writing the check, that's sim- very simplistic, over simplistic assessment of venture capital. But venture capital is pivoting to new ideas like yours. Yeah, and the the entire, you know, there's there's nine trillion dollars of capital managed in the private markets and the US stock market, I mean, not not accounting for its recent declines, is somewhere in the neighborhood of forty, forty-five trillion dollars of capital. And I think all of these companies run on SaaS systems of record. There's no reason why one day a public company doesn't generate its 10Ks automatically from a system like Hum. So I think what we're doing uh, basically on the back of SaaS commercial SaaS adoption is going to change how all finance works. Now in venture capital. Um, like we talked about the unbundling of expertise and where the capital comes from, there's a tremendous amount of capital locked up inside of insurance companies and pension funds that invest today through venture funds to access startups. But actually, they would much prefer to co-invest or directly invest because their fees are lower. And in the in the public markets, 50% of capital invested is invested passively. Char- uh, uh, you can go to Vanguard and they'll charge you five basis points to invest your capital in the S&P 500. You used to pay Peter Lynch at Fidelity, you know, one and a half and call it 15% of performance on that to do that manually back in the 80s. Um, and so I think these same ideas that have already transformed the public markets are going to happen in the private markets. And uh, it's just a matter of time. Um, so yeah, I think what, what we're doing is going to transform venture in that way. Blair Silverberg from Studying Annual Reports After Junior High heading Hum Capital in Manhattan. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.